Hey everybody, thanks for coming to another episode of Adventures in Angular. I'm the host, Aaron Frost, and today on the panel, we have Jennifer Wadella. How's it going? Day before Turkey Day. That's true, it's our Thanksgiving Day recording. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that smells like pumpkin pie. I have to do pumpkin pie tonight. That's what I'm doing. And coconut cream. Be love, Brian Love. Hello, how's it going? Good. Settled in in Portland. That's right. Yeah, well, still unpacking boxes, but okay. we're getting there. Yeah, nice. We've got Alyssa on the search for the quest, the ultimate quest <laughs> for Wi-Fi. Hello, hello. <laughs> the audio will get better as we continue through this journey. <laughs> okay, good. And then um, as our guest today, we have Philippe. Philip or Philippe? Philippe, but Philip is fine. Okay, Philip. Some of the people listening will know who you are. Can you do a good intro so that uh, all the listeners get to know who you are? Sure, of course. So um, I'm happy to be here. I'm Philippe Direc from Belgium. We have no Turkey Day tomorrow, just a regular Thursday. I'm a web security expert. So I've, I did a PhD in web security and I've been doing web security for a, quite a long time already. And today I mainly train developers on how to build secure applications. I help companies out with complex security topics, which today is usually OAuth, OpenID Connect, and how to build modern versions of a secure application. So it's mainly Angular and APIs and everything that comes into play there. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. I feel like this might be one of the episodes where all the listeners, including the panelists, walk away in shame. Is that what's about to happen? Well, I hope not. So I'm usually not the kind of shame guy because honestly, I think we all try to do our best. Uh, well, yeah. if Jennifer's password is really password. I, I have some doubts there. But uh, yeah. general <laughs> developers, from my experience, they, they just want to build as good as an application as they can with the time that they have. And security yeah. is one of these topics that is insanely complex and doesn't really visually add something to the application. That's why it's often overlooked or less yeah. good than we hope it is. But it's not about shaming people for getting it wrong. It's about inspiring people to get it right. And that's basically what I do day in, day out. Is the inspiration in the form of fear though? Like, hey, this CSO just got fired because, <laughs> because they didn't do the things I'm about to talk about. Yeah, well, fear definitely definitely helps in getting the message across. And yeah. it depends a bit on your audience. If it's a, more of a, a manager-level audience, then the big numbers definitely make some impact. Like, hey, this company is facing a 180 million pound fine for one of their breaches. That's usually eye-opening. When it's about developers, I typically focus on the technical side of stories. Like, hey, this is how they abused NPM to carry out one specific attack against one application. And this should scare the hell out of you. And it usually does. So that's that's good. And that yeah, is the breeding ground for starting to think about security and how to do it. Let's let's talk about that. We already did a whole show on event stream, I think. So give us like another NPM example that will scare us. <laughs> All right. This is from earlier this year, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And it's about a, a cryptocurrency wallet system. So it's an open source application where you can manage your cryptocurrency and somebody targeted that application specifically. So what they did is they essentially proposed a new feature to developers. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we, we got this native level notifications in our operating system that we could have ex- actually use the macOS or Windows notifications because it's an Electron app and the developers were like, yeah, that, that would be really, really nice. And the attacker was like, do you want me to work on that? And they're like, uh, yes, please. And that's essentially what happened. It's all started as a legitimate open source contribution. 
And then the attacker got to work. They published a package on NPM that said uh, allowed to use that API. They made a pull request for that application using that dependency to basically add that notification feature. And all of that happened in two weeks, which is for an open source product a pretty good turnaround time. So that's a yeah, that's a very nice contribution. And then up until that point, nothing bad happened. So this happens every day in in our community. This is how people contribute to software. And then all of a sudden, the attacker, once the dependency was in the application, they added a little bit of malware to that next version, and they pushed it out, and they just waited until it got included in the real application, until it got deployed mm-hmm. again. And mm-hmm. at that point, it was um, they were stealing the seeds from the users' wallets and publishing them on a public server. And they were just oh, wow. waiting. It's tricky. Yeah. yeah, and they just were waiting to get enough of them. And then the plan was to steal all the money in one big swoop. That part of the story is really, really, really scary in my opinion, because this is a real targeted attack. It's not like a broad sweep, silly malware attack, um, which is fairly easy to catch. This one was t- targeting one particular application. Yeah, it has some finesse, is what you're saying. Like, Yes, it, absolutely. They worked their way in slowly. Yes. What um, ended up happening? How did it come to light? Well, actually, this is the, the favorite part of this story. There's a major plot twist right then. So they were stealing the seeds for, I think, a month and a half, from mid-April till early June. And then somebody at NPM, because NPM knows about these problems and they constantly scan packages for malware, they found a piece of malware and they looked at it and it's like, oh crap, what the hell do we have on our hands here? And they contacted the company of the product and they were both like, yeah, we're, we're kind of screwed because the seats are out there and there's no way we can walk back from this. So they actually conspired with NPM and the whole uh, team to, to steal all the money from the, those wallets themselves. So they moved it to a different system because they already had an upgrade they were migrating users to. So they basically force migrated everyone and allowed them to recover. Secretly? Well, they, they did it and then they announced this publicly. Yeah. Like, yeah, we had this kind of problem and you can reclaim your accounts this and that way. Um, but they, they had to do something, yeah. otherwise the money would be gone. So wow, it's, it's a happy ending, but a, a very cautionary tale in my opinion. That could have been a huge, like a crazy expensive problem, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And... We, we see some of these other stories, well, of these major breaches with a lot of financial impact. And often we don't know the exact cause of the problem, but very often it's it's a dependency issue, unfortunately. I feel like we could like fill this whole podcast up with just like horror stories where we all like walk away and like we never want to like use our computers again. But so for somebody who's starting to listen to this and being like, oh my God, there's so much I don't know. Do you have like a beginner's checklist or like, you know, common level knowledge to you that the average developer not, might not be aware of um, when, when starting to look at making a more secure application? That's a good question. So unfortunately, it's not that easy to just give you a checklist and off you go. But if you're really new to security, I would recommend to look at some of the OWASP resources. So OWASP is a nonprofit organization, the Open Web Application Security Project. And they essentially aim to advance everybody's knowledge on security. And they've been doing that for a long time. And they actually have some very useful starter resources, such as an OWASP top 10, which is the top 10 of the most dangerous vulnerabilities. So that would be a good way to start because these problems exist in a lot of applications and they're devastating when they exist. So for example, injection attacks such as SQL injection or command injection are definitely listed number one because they are really, really dangerous. And if you've never heard of security, it would be a good idea to look at these things first because people are exploiting these and they have a significant impact. And they have that for for different ecosystems nowadays. They have a mobile top 10, a Docker security top 10, and they they also focus on the, the development side. So they have a, a top 10 of proactive controls, things you can be doing as a developer, like, hey, you should be implementing this and this and this, because that makes sense. And there's even an ASVS document, which is uh, a very extensive, it's not a starter document, but an extensive document of security requirements. So basically lists out, if you're building an application, everything you should be doing for security. And it's over 250 different requirements of uh, what wow. you can start doing and what you should be doing and how to think about security. So, yeah. I was wondering, are most of these recommendations coming from OWASP? Because uh, I'm somewhat familiar with it. Are most of these for people that are doing backend development or do they also have uh, resources for people that are doing client-side development? It's, it's a bit of both. So all of it is built by volunteers. Um, so it's a, it's a massive volunteer movement because the OWASP organization is like a small core doing some organizational stuff and mm-hmm. everything else is driven by volunteers. There is definitely some focus on on front end as well but not okay. uh, not as a very specific topic so 
whenever it matters, like injection is going to be a backend problem, uh, whether you like it or not. But cross-site scripting, for example, becomes a front-end problem. Sure. In if you're building a front-end application, so there they will refer to some of the cross-site scripting content as well. Cool. But you're right about that question because when I talk, I, I have a talk about Angular and the OWASP top ten, for example, and I mm-hmm. I kind of rearrange the top ten in in kind of a a better way to reflect on single page applications. Uh, right. That's what I was yeah. thinking. Cause if you've been around, I mean, I've been doing web development for a long time now and I remember learning about all this stuff and a lot of it's focused on like securing your backend, right. And preventing SQL injection attacks and cross side. Well, I guess XSS is front side, but it seemed to me like at the time, and I haven't been to the OWASP website in a few years, <laughs> which is probably not a good thing. But it seemed like a lot of it's focused on more of like securing your data, your backend, and all that kind of stuff. So it'd be cool to kind of revisit that and see what what does the spa kind of have as an impact on security. So I'm very interested in this topic and learning more from you. Yeah. So one of the reasons the backend stuff is there and gets all the attention is because the impact on the backend is, of course, much higher mm-hmm. than the impact on the front end. So if right. I can break into your backend and grab all the data from your database, then yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, jackpot. Right. Yeah, if yeah. I want to do the same through a, a spa, then I have to basically attack every single user individually, trying right. to make things happen in their name. And the attack is going to be still possible, but a lot harder. Sure, right. Slow. But then you can gather individual information like logins or whatever it is, if you're like kind yep. of phishing, basically. Sure, right? logins is definitely one thing. Logins is, is kind of a tricky thing because it's something we can easily see as valuable data. But mm-hmm. to an attacker, a login is not that valuable. So what we see today mm. is the the group of uh, mage card attacks, which is basically going after credit card information because that uh-huh. data is, is actually valuable. You can go to the black market and start selling off thousands of credit card numbers and you could get some hard cash in return. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's, crazy. that's what we see today. All these JavaScript uh, malwares uh, are basically credit card skimmers nowadays because that's where the real money is. I'm thinking about like where Jennifer asked her question. Um, Maybe because the listeners, we don't have time to bust out the OWASP top 10 project like here on the podcast, all of it. So as a programmer of a front-end project, how do I know that when I, when I read a blog and it's like, install NPX FUBAR or whatever, NPX magic thing, and I go and install that because the blog said to do that. How do I, like, how do I go to bed that night knowing that NPX magic thing and all the things the NPH magic thing depends on. How do I know I didn't just open up my company to like, or what can I do to, to sleep better at night? Because every single person listening on this podcast has installed something like NPX magic thing. How do we know we're not giving away our users' credit cards is what I'm asking you. It's a really good question. <laughs> Do you want the honest answer or the honest answer is there's no guarantees, right? But like, how do yeah. how do I how do I do my due diligence there? Well, the honest answer is you really really have no idea. So it's a lot worse than people think, by the way. So there's a recent study on the npm ecosystem, and they found that on average, one npm package relies on eighty others. So this means because do, of the dependency graph, yes, right? you do npx install magic thing, and you actually get like eighty other magic things <laughs> bundled all into that. So yes, you have a whole dependency tree, and the study estimated that about forty percent of packages relies on known vulnerable code, meaning that perfect, perfect, perfect. Yes. awesome, yeah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the first part of the answer. So yeah. is that why my node modules folder is so big? <laughs> So, so this episode of Adventures in Angular brought to you by Ambien to help you sleep <laughs> yeah. at night. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So basically, forty percent. I mean, forty percent chance on one dependency, which means I have forty. So it's almost a hundred percent guaranteed chance I have known security vulnerabilities in my back. In my in my. Well, in my to be framework. to be honest, I was not the best in my statistics course, so I'm not going to answer that particular question. Yeah. But, uh, but 40, 40... But yeah, it's, it's insane. Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to not have them is, is what it sounds like based on statistics. Yes. Unfortunately, there, there's a few things you can do and it's not as dramatic or as bad as it sounds. So it sounds like it's a really big problem and it is a problem. But there's a few things to take into account. First of all, when you have a, a problem in your dependency, it's not necessarily an exploitable problem. So if it's part of a library that you don't use, 
and that code is never called or there's nowhere to call that code, then it's not going to be that easy or that straightforward to exploit that vulnerability. So that's definitely one thing. A lot of dependencies are dev dependencies, such as running your tests and on all of those things. So unless it's malware specifically targeting your test and deployment machines, you're probably, again, not going to be in trouble. So that's, again, a, a good thing. So triaging these vulnerabilities is always a bit important to see how bad these really are for your application. That's one part of the story. And then the second part, your due diligence. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned it. There's a couple of things you can do and should be doing. And NPM, for example, uh, has been doing this for a while. Every time you run NPM install, they will run a tool called NPM audit and they will tell you about how many vulnerabilities you have and allowing you to fix them by updating those vulnerable packages. So they have basically a date database of vulnerabilities and they can match that against your packages. So as you're speaking, um, it's every, everything you said was, um, was from the aspect of known vulnerabilities. Do they have any sort of statistics about, we think there's this many unknown vulnerabilities. Like, do they have that number that they've, that they've dared to share yet? Not that I know of. No. Okay. Cause, cause I'm sitting there going, all oh, this is multiplicatively more difficult to assume based on unknown because like there was a time where that the story you told us and like the event stream story and all the other examples of these trojan things that happened there was a time when that was unknown so um like is there any there's nothing you can do basically it's worse than anyone thinks there's nothing you can do well you should be doing a, a couple of things so yes vulnerabilities are always unknown before they're known so that's the case with everything we've had so far and every vulnerability in every system so it's it's a matter of kind of hoping that the right people find it first and report it instead of the wrong people finding it and abusing it. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. Another thing you should be doing is you should be running NPM audit alone is not enough because NPM audit only runs when you do NPM install or in your build pipeline. But I'm kind of guessing that tomorrow we will not be building that much software unless you really dislike your family, then you might be building a lot of software, but uh, <laughs> I'll leave that in the middle. The point is when you're not running that tool, you don't get any updates about a vulnerability. So if something is discovered tonight and you will not run that until Monday next week, then that's five days that you have been running a version of that software that's known to be vulnerable. So what you should be running is is like a continuous service monitoring that. And GitHub and some uh, vendors offer that as well. And that is what you actually should be doing. So I'm running that on GitHub, and if a vulnerability comes out while I'm doing this talk, I'm going to get an email, which I'll see after the talk, saying like, hey, this project has this dependency, and we have discovered that there's a vulnerability, so you should update to this new version. And that is something that everyone doing dependency-based software should be doing. And that's not only Angular, that's all the front-end frameworks, but just as well all the back-end systems, which have the same problems, like Maven and NuGet and Python and Ruby gems and all of them, they have dependencies with known vulnerabilities and all of them should be running such a system, such a service to ensure that you get updates as soon as you can. And then I'd of course push out a new version with a patched, for, a patched dependency. Now the uh, system, did you write it yourself like for to notify you whenever you're away or is this something that was already created that you're just using? No, what I'm using, I'm using two things, actually. I'm using um, GitHub's dependency graph. That's a, a free service. You can just enable that on GitHub by click, uh, configuring a few settings and basically allowing that service to access your source code if it's a private repo. And then GitHub starts doing that automatically. So that's one option. And there's a, a startup called SNYK, S-N-Y-K, that offers a similar service and they have a free open source version. So I'm using their free version as well just to to monitor my my packages and they, they give me like automatic pull requests you can merge with the updated version. So those are definitely two recommended tools. And of course, big companies use commercial vendors which have similar offerings as well. So uh, yeah, you don't have to build that yourself. You can start using that for free uh, today and it's highly recommended to do so. That's awesome. uh, these are all really cool. great tips. Yeah. yeah. So awesome. like for Angular specific developers though, like, okay, they listen to this podcast. They're like, okay, I, I don't know what I don't know. What's something they can go and like implement on Monday that you would recommend to start taking like some, some baby steps towards? What are some just easy things um, that Angular developers might not know about? That's actually a good question. My recommendation would be to look at my Angular Connect talk from earlier this year, which is about Angular security. So that's going to be a good starting point to get, get a, a heads up on what you need to look out for. First of all, my response is going to be 
good job choosing Angular because Angular is one of the only frameworks that does quite a bit for security, which is a really good thing. So my my guidelines for Angular developers are definitely much shorter than for other frameworks because Angular does so much out of the box, which is absolutely the way it should be. So that's amazing. Major vulnerability in frontends would be cross-site scripting. That's definitely a big nasty problem. And that is the one that Angular is tackling out of the box quite well. Wow. How? How? Well, um, a couple of That's things. That's the if you sanitizer, do... right? The DOM sanitizer? Yes. Okay, there's... yeah, yeah, go ahead. The simple thing is when you do simple interpolation, simple data binding, Angular will automatically ensure it ends up in the page in a safe way. So everything between the curly brackets is a safe output. There's no mm-hmm. questions about that. And then in Angular 2, when you bind to inner HTML between the, the square brackets, then Angular will ensure that it's sanitized before it's put into the page. So essentially, it allows the use of some HTML, but if that would be untrusted, let's say user input, there might be God knows what kind of JavaScript or SVG or whatever in there. Angular is going to take that stuff out automatically before it puts that into the page, meaning that you as a developer don't have to worry about that at all. It's going to be safe output for sure. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. I don't normally do this, but as you said that, I wondered, what does out of the box, what does reactive view do? If I just lay down my curly braces and say, put this thing in here. Does React and Vue have a similar thing to like the sanitized stuff that Angular is doing? So React and Vue and Ember, these are the three I know about. They do the first part as well. So everything you do with simple data binding, they will ensure it's, it ends up in the page in a safe way. So that's definitely a big step forward compared to the old way of doing things with server-side page generation. The second part, the automatic sanitization, that is something only Angular does. So the other frameworks do not do that which is, in my opinion, not a good thing. But their reasoning is that it goes beyond their scope or what they consider to be the responsibility of the framework or the library that that they offer. And there, um, if you're doing that, you should be using a library called Tom Purify, which is basically a sanitizer written in JavaScript for HTML. So you can feed it the unsafe input coming from God knows where, and it will output safe HTML, which you can put into the page safely in React uh, using the dangerously set in HTML or in view with v-html. I'm just trying to help peel this back for people who are on teams out there where this matters. Um, like if I do create React app and create a new app or like if I create a new with the view CLI or the Ember CLI, does DOM Purify get installed by default or do I have to go manually wire this stuff up in my project? It does not get installed by default, so you'll have to do it yourself, which is okay. why my guidelines are a bit more extensive. So okay. for React, you can simply, it's it's a single JavaScript file, so you install it with NPM, of course. Um, it's a good one, so don't worry. <laughs> you install it with NPM, and then you you hook into your project, and you can call it. For Vue, I know there's a, a small library that adds a, a v-dompurify-html binding, so you can install that uh, simple add-on and then start using that. But the developer needs to be aware of that. So the developer needs to know that they have to use that instead of the traditional output which is not the case in Angular. Angular, you just use the HTML, the inner HTML binding and you're done. And that's why I like that approach a bit better. Okay. That's good to know. I think, um, you know, a lot of times we're down this, the rabbit hole. We're like, hey, I use, I use Angular, right? And eventually someone's like, why? And we're like, well, I like it. It's, I know it. And it's, it's easier today than anything else would be for me. To, but these are good things to help you go. Yeah, I, I like it because of this. It's, it helps me write better web apps. So that's, that's good to know. I'm glad that you, should, that you explained that to us. Yeah, and everybody has their preference. And honestly, I'm the security guy, so I'm not going to tell you what to use. Basically use what works for your team, but make sure you're aware of these security implications. Absolutely. So I, I did talk about React security a couple of weeks ago as well. So if there's React people listening, you might want to look that one up. And give that a go. But yeah, it's you'll need to figure out these things for your framework. And figuring that out for Angular, you still need to do that because there's a few things you should avoid. But in general, my advice is stick to the Angular way of doing things. Don't try to fight a framework and Angular will cover you as far as XSS is concerned. While you're on the topic of cool things Angular does to make things more secure, what other things do you like is Angular doing for us, for the developer? 
And by um, Angular, I mean like the framework, not the people. <laughs> well, specifically, there's not much security-wise baked right into the framework because, well, the, the responsibilities of the framework are rather limited um, in, in the sense of it, it's, it's about interactions and all of that, about uh, showing UIs and dealing with that. But cross-site scripting is definitely the most important security issue there. Angular is also, the, only, the other thing it also does is it tries to address cross-site request forgery in certain scenarios, which is kind of a, a complicated attack where, where basically if you're using cookies to within the same domain, somebody might be sending requests to your backend from a different website in trying to make things happen in your name. And this, this deployment scenario is not that common, but it used to be more common back in the Angular 1 days. And Angular already back then automatically implemented a countermeasure for that. So if you wanted to rely on that defense, Angular was doing everything it needed on its part. So all you needed in your backend are a few checks to make sure your backend is not vulnerable to those kind of attacks. But today in an OAuth and OIDC world, this is a lot less common, but it used to be more common. And Angular does that again out of the box. So that's nice. Okay, so question about uh, authentication libraries. One, do you have a favorite library that you recommend uh, developers use? And two, JSON web tokens and security, yay or nay? Oof, uh, let's open a can of worms, (laughs) sure. (laughs) I know, controversial time. (laughs) Favorite library? Not really, because again, different libraries work in different uh, scenarios. I would say if you need to implement authentication today, definitely go for OpenID Connect. So um, authentication over the years has become so complicated, especially with people like you choosing password as a password. <laughs> so the, these things are definitely a lot more complicated. There's, there's like brute force attacks, there's credential stuffing attacks where people are trying out stolen credentials from somewhere else on your application. And it has become really, really hard to implement a secure authentication mechanism yourself. So my recommendation is don't do it. Just rely on a vendor to do it because they are supposed to get that right and they will have a much better system to do that. And relying on a vendor means you'll have to refer to someone else for authentication and OpenID Connect is a protocol you would use to to do that uh, today. It essentially allows you to delegate authentication to Google if you want to use something public, to your enterprise single sign-on or to your uh, cloud-based sign-on system such as Auth0. There's plenty of different options available. So yeah, that's my recommendation for authentication today. Philip, can you explain for the listeners kind of what's the difference between OpenID Connect and OAuth? Because I know maybe we've kind of thrown some of those terms around and can you kind of explain that for us? Sure. So OAuth was here first. OAuth is basically a delegation framework. So OAuth allows you as a user to delegate access to one of your resources to an application. So one of the examples I typically use to explain OAuth is um, Buffer, a, a tool I'm using to schedule social media posts. So whenever I do a presentation, I schedule a post that pushes out the slides and all of that uh, a couple of minutes before I start. I love and Buffer. I had no idea it has anything to do with security, though. No, it has nothing to do with security. Oh, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you found a Starbucks, I see. So, uh, all right. What they do is they post to Twitter on my behalf, um, which and my Twitter timeline is kind of my resource. So they need to get access to Twitter one way or another. And the right way is not to give them my Twitter username and password. You should not do that. But with OAuth, I can delegate access to Buffer. So it's going to be an inter- in, well, a complex flow with Twitter where I have to approve access and Buffer is going to get some tokens. And with those tokens, they can later go back to Twitter and say like, hey, I got this from Philip right. before and I should be able to post something on this timeline and Twitter will verify that and allow that to happen. That's right. what OAuth does. OAuth is yep. about delegating access to a protected resource, which is typically an API in, in the modern world. Okay. Open, OpenID Connect came when people started building authentication on top of OAuth. So they, they said like, yeah, but what if we have a token and we can access some personal information then we can determine who the user is and we can build kind of an authentication system with that. While it identifies the user, it doesn't really authenticate them in a the sense that you don't know that the user is present because that token may have been from yesterday. And if you mm-hmm. reuse that today to establish who I am, it doesn't really represent the properties of an authentication, which kind of assumes that I am here present at this time doing something uh, as a user. And that's why... They said when, when people started building that, the major companies were using OAuth for that. They said like, you know what, let's build OpenID Connect on top of OAuth. So it uses everything OAuth uses, but just adds a few items to make sure you can use that for authentication. 
So the OpenID Connect flow is going to be the same. They're typically used in combination anyway. You're going to get an identity token in return, which represents information about your authentication for the client. And so it still uses the same two-step kind of OAuth flow, and you still get that token back, but it's an additional yes. token? Yes, it's an additional token. For Buffer, for example, if I would choose to log in with, uh, with Google, sign in with Google to access my Buffer account, I could do that. They would send me to Google, and Google would ask me, is it okay if you share your details with Buffer? And they would get an identity token saying, this is Philip Dreck, this is his email address, and it's going to be signed by Google. So Buffer can verify that and see like, oh yeah, Google says that this is Philip, so we're going to trust that. So that is what OpenID Connect does. And then, of course, if it's a system where there's also stuff to post, they could also get an access token and access APIs on my behalf and so on and so on. And that's how you use them in combination. But the OIDC part is basically the authentication part. And you can do the whole... This The buffer case is they're running backend systems. So that's one particular use case for that. You can do the same thing with frontends. So you could sign in to an Angular application for example, let's say you build a, a nice Google Analytics dashboard. Um, you could offer the option to sign, with, sign in with Google. So I can just click the button. You send me to Google. I log in to my Google account there. And your front-end gets an identity token saying that this is Philip Dreck. Of course, authentication to a front-end doesn't really mean a thing because there's nothing to really authenticate to. But you also get the OAuth tokens allowing you to access my analytics data. Mm-hmm. And you can start filling in the data in your dashboard and, and so on and so on. And that yep. is how these things fit together. And then in that, that front-end application, where do I store those tokens? I know there's some kind of talk around local storage versus cookies and that kind of thing. Yes, I talked about that uh, a few times as well in the past. I would say put them in local storage. If you're doing a Really? Front- yes. Okay. All right. Why are you surprised by that? Because I feel like I've heard or read recently that like local storage can be compromised. And so you should be putting it in an HTTP only cookie instead. So that way JavaScript doesn't have access to the cookie or the client right, doesn't have access to the, the token that's stored in that cookie value, right? Yes. You're, you're, kind of you're the expert. On, on one of my pet peeves. So yes. Oh, read, okay, good. You'll read that advice quite, that advice quite a bit. But I'm, I'm not a big fan of that piece of advice because what, what they're trying to do is essentially they're trying to protect the tokens against cross-site scripting attacks. So the attacker right. all of a sudden manages to execute JavaScript code in the, in the application and they can right. steal data from local storage and ship it off somewhere else. But so it's already compromised, right? When it's already compromised, yes. Right. And hiding yeah. that in an HTTP-only cookie would prevent that little piece of information to be stolen. Sure. I like to compare that to your house. So let's say... You want to protect your house against burglars. And if you leave your jewelry out on the table, if somebody gets in, it's going to be easy to steal, right? Sure. Your kitchen table is basically local storage. So you want to hide it away in a hidden place where nobody can reach it. Or whatever. Yeah, sure. A safe hidden somewhere else and nobody will be able to find it. And that's going to be your HTTP-only cookie. But at that point, the burglars are still in your house and they can still do whatever they want. Still sure. taking my, my PlayStation and my TV. and Yeah, and they can invite 50,000 other people and have a party and trash the whole <laughs> so, And right. a real attacker will, will be able to do that in Angular as well. They can start calling the backend from within the application. And there's no way to stop. Yeah. And the, sure. cookie will, the cookie will be there. The and cookie is going to get sent. So yeah, they, you're already compromised. Yeah, okay. They can, and they can even go back to the... OAuth server, the identity provider or authorization get server. A long, get another and, token. And get another token and steal that right. as well. Yeah, and, and then store that in a database somewhere yes. off and then start making requests on your behalf. Yeah, exactly. So it. Yeah. The, the main message there is that once you have cross-site scripting, it's basically game over. So once the attacker is running code in your application, uh-huh. you're done. And maybe a non-skilled attacker will not be able to grab or do anything useful without stealing that token, but a skilled attacker mm-hmm. will not be stopped by that. My advice typically is don't worry about where you're going to put it and trying to find a way to put it somewhere safely, but spend the time that you save by not worrying about that okay. on reading up on Angular and cross-site scripting yes. because that's going to be much more useful. Cool. So about those JSON web tokens. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, you remembered. <laughs> don't, are they called JOTs? I, I, somebody told yeah. me this once. I've always called them JWTs. And no, I was talking yeah. to somebody at a conference. They're like, "Oh yeah, just put it in your jaw." I'm like, "You're, uh, I'm sorry, you're what?" Yeah, you feel the pain saying JWT fifty times. You do, minutes. especially yes. like in a talk. Yeah, so you yeah, jot. So the the actual spec I think even says you pronounce it as a jot, just really? because yeah, the JW right. part is kind of. I mean, I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> so yeah, that's actually a second question I often get, and where the answer is not very simple. So a jot 
means nothing really. A jot is a way to represent a claim securely. And what you do with that is totally up to you. So what a jot offers is typically signature. So you, you can put a, a set of claims in a jot, like key value pairs, and it's going to be a signed jot. And it allows you to verify the validity of these claims when you receive such a jot. There's a whole lot of technical things going on. I'm going to refer to you to another one of my conference talks for more details. But that's what a jot does. And you can also encrypt the content if you really want to, which is not that common, but um, supported by libraries, so easy to implement as well. What you build with that shot, that is going to be up to you. So if you just want to use that to transfer a, a bit of information in a secure way, then sure, you can do that. OpenID Connect uses that for the identity token. That's going to be a JOT. So Google is going to give my application a JOT saying like, hey, this is a token coming from us saying that this is for Drake. His email address is this, the authenticator this time, and uh, blah, blah, blah. And my application can verify that um, signature to ensure it's valid. I know it's going to come from Google because I verified that with Google's key. And I now know I can rely on that information. So that is one use case of a JSON web token. What you unfortunately see quite often is people abusing them. So people see them in use in these complex systems like OAuth and OpenID Connect. And they're like, oh, that's pretty cool. I can use that to represent some of my claims. And they're starting to build stateless applications where they push some data to the client and they use a JOT for that. And what they're doing there is basically re-implementing sessions with JOTs, even though the properties of a client-side stored piece of data is entirely different than a server-side piece of stored data. And they're basically, yeah, in my opinion, doing something with a JOT, but it's not designed for. If, if that kind of answers your question, we, we can go into a lot more detail if you want to. So <laughs> No, totally cool. It's just like one of those things that people might not even have on their radar, which is why I like to ask. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll point you to a conference talk so we can refer to that in the notes or something like that later. Y'all are going to have a bunch of homework to do after listening to this episode, that's for sure. Yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those episodes. Well, I'd be surprised if we could cover everything that we needed to about security in one, one podcast. That'd be so, impressive. <laughs> totally, totally not even possible. So do you have any examples of like things Angular developers specifically have done wrong with security that has gotten them in trouble? Because, I mean, you've given us some NPM stuff. You've given us some other things that people have done wrong. Do you have any like Angular-specific security issues that, that you could share just because some of us only change with the fear of God and you might need to throw that into us? So give us some Angular scaredness real quick. All right, so Angular-specific... Um... There's a couple of things you should probably stay away from if you're building Angular applications. So one of these things is trying to do things outside of Angular. So I briefly talked about that. Just let Angular protect you. So if you're trying to do something that doesn't really work well and you're trying to be smart and like, let's just use jQuery to do this little piece of DOM manipulation, then um, that is going to be out of reach for Angular's protections. So that is going to be a very, very risky operation because it might result in cross-site scripting again because jQuery yeah. is not doing anything automatically to protect you against that. Yeah, like if you if you appended some value from the server to the DOM with jQuery, then... For example, yes. Um, or if you're trying to output something through innerHTML, but it sanitizes away too much, and you're like, yeah, just put this in the DOM directly or with jQuery or whatever, then um, yeah. well, there's a reason it gets sanitized away, and that's because it's dangerous. So yeah, uh, doing that is definitely a high risk of uh, potential problems. So maybe a, 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 a takeaway would be if, if Angular stops you from doing something and you're like, I got this. Maybe just you're doing in, something wrong. Just inject the native element and start like setting the interaction. Like if, you, if Angular stopped you, maybe step back and question what you're trying to do. Is, 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 that, a good, is that a good guideline to, to maybe take away? Yes, that, that is an absolute accurate takeaway. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. So what else? And if, what else? And if you still need to do that, Maybe there is a valid use case, but call in an expert to ensure to make sure that what you're doing is actually okay. You could still do it. You could use the renderer too, and then you could also use the DOM sanitizer, create that element, and stuff in the inner, inner HTML. You just gotta make sure you're doing it properly, right? So, I mean, Angular still got your back, so don't be but reaching for jQuery so fast. But like, <laughs> even if you did what Brian said, maybe step back and question. Like, if you're, yeah, if you're right, maybe. I got the renderer too now. Maybe you just need an NGF. So you, and like, I got the sanitizer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. But by the way, the function to tell Angular not to sanitize something is called bypass security trust HTML. So they bake that right into the name to ensure that there's no confusion about what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's a, it's a big Open myself to exploits. I love yeah. that. But it, <laughs> it, it actually comes from the Angular 1 day. So in Angular 1, that function was called trust as HTML. It had the same meaning. They, they essentially meant let's mark this piece of HTML as safe so we don't have to right. automatically sanitize it when it goes out. But what, what happened is people found that function, didn't really understand the, the nuance of what it meant. And they were starting uh, to write... It like sounds a, positive. Trust Trust it this. Does, yeah. Yes. And you'll you find trust it. Stack Overflow <laughs> snippets that actually tell people like, yeah, this is how you sanitize, even though it did nothing. It just marked it as safe and put it in. Oh, the- no way. And that's <laughs> it's like the top voted answer. I guarantee that's the top voted answer on some questions, yo. <laughs> yeah, it, it used to be and for like, a while, uh, absolutely. Somewhere below is Philippe saying, don't ever call this function ever. And like, it, it's, it's got like one vote. That's pro- I can guarantee that's, that exists on no, Stack Overflow. I tried doing that, but I didn't have enough karma to respond. So <laughs> I'm not an active user. I'm just yeah. a passive user. Uh, who's this uh, guy? <laughs> but you'll find comments from people in one of my talks that started responding to one of these examples. Like, no, that's not the way to do it. And it, it took about a year until somebody actually edited the wrong example to give a right example. But yeah, it, that one example got fixed. So that's good. That is good. Because of that, they actually renamed that to bypass security, which which has a, a very clear meaning. And like I said in the beginning, I don't I believe developers don't want to get it wrong, but they, they also want to make things as fast as they can because they have plenty of other things to do. And if you copy paste something from Stack Overflow and it's 10 lines of code and one of those lines says bypass security, I'm pretty confident that most developers will be like, hmm, what does that mean? Let me What is this try. little magic nugget? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that should bring them to the documentation, which should explain that and tell them how yeah. to do it right. I think there's a warning right at the top in the docs about like only use this if you're absolutely certain. Yes, Is there actually a use case the, to, to bypass the security that you've seen? Static code snippets. So let's say that you want to output a piece of HTML into your template based on a certain condition in code or something. Then if you've written every letter of that yourself as a developer, if it doesn't come from an, an input source, but actually a static code, then, then you can use okay. it. Sure. Got it. Um, cool. You could also use it, and I'm not recommending this, but if you really need to sidestep the sanitizer, you might be able to use Dumpurify to sanitize it because Dumpurify is a bit more configurable. And then you can output it into the DOM directly without triggering the Angular sanitizer. But... Again, consult with an expert before you do that to make sure what you're allowing is actually okay because cross-site scripting is a tricky problem. On yep. that note of consulting with an expert, if somebody has questions and is in need of an expert services, how could they get a hold of you? <laughs> um, best way is, well, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I have a website from my company called Pragmatic Web Security. So that would be definitely the best way. So any consulting or training, I'll be happy to discuss what's possible. And you'll also find me on conferences around Europe next year in the first half. So I'll be doing a single-page application security workshop at a few conferences and one even in the U.S. in Hawaii. So that might be interesting for you as well. So I have to ask, have you submitted any of these security talks to NGConf call for papers? I did last year, I think, but uh, I was not accepted. So... (laughs) Which is totally fine. So um, I do submit to a couple of conferences for sure. And I actually wrote my CFPs out last week. And when I was about to submit them, I realized that I had a conflict in my travel schedule. So I... Yes. We're we're expecting a third third child and I need to be home for that. Uh, That's kind of important. Kind of important. Yes, it's it's a really valid reason. So... uh, (laughs) I mean, if it was the first kid, I'd give you a total pass, but it's the third one, so it's like, you've been there twice. You really need to be there. (laughs) Well, there's two two other kids running around, so... um, Right, so yeah, you do really need to be there. I do travel at least half of the year, so yes, I'm going to be here for the birth of our child, for sure. We'll miss you. Thank you. I'll try to be there in 2021, sure. Yeah. And I'm going to be at the Belgian Angular Conference next week. And I'm cool. pretty sure it's going to, I've never been to NGConf, and I'm pretty sure that the Belgian one is better. Oh. <laughs> Shots fired. Burn. What just happened? Burn. What just happened? <laughs> I did not see that coming. 
I felt, man, he's such a well, nice guy. I mean, hey, he hey, just throws that in he there. He says he's yeah. never been. He says he's never been. I'm going to let it pass. But <laughs> to be fair, the Belgian one is my favorite event of all events ever. So uh, cool. it's my cool. fourth year in a row I'm going to be there. It's a, it's a really small venue. So it's like really cozy. And the, the organizers, yeah. well, you probably know a couple of them. They're really, really nice and awesome people. And they make everybody welcome. It's basically like a... A family event that you go to. It's uh, yeah. the last one of the year I go to, and it's absolutely my favorite. So I've never seen anything that tops it. But maybe, who knows? Maybe Enchikov does. But uh, <laughs> I'll, we do. I'll have an open mind when I'm there. Absolutely. A lot of people actually know. A lot of people actually know. You said, who knows? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to trust the other people, and I hope I can definitely make it there in the future because that sounds kind of like that's awesome. a dependency and just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, NPM install this. Just trust me, bro. <laughs> it's fine. It'll be Bypass okay. security. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, um, perfect. You threw your information out there because people are going to want to get a hold of you, listeners. So, did you, you put your information out there already? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, sure. Right. And I'll give you the exact details for the notes as well. And you can find my conference talks all around. So um, if you just yeah. Google for Angular Security, you're going to find me on YouTube. And there's going to be a lot of knowledge to absorb there as well. Okay, cool. Adventures in Angular is a devchat.tv production made in partnership with Hero Devs. Hero Devs is a group of Angular experts who can help your team code like true developer heroes. If your team needs an Angular expert, reach out to Aaron at hero.dev today. Let's move on to the picks section of the show. So I'm going to go first. So this was actually my last podcast uh, on Adventures in Angular. So I'm going to move on and uh, I'm going to do the Angular show, which is uh, a different Angular podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be cool. So my pick for that is the listeners on Adventures in Angular, just because I've been doing this podcast for oh man since it started i was i think i was on the first episode so i love it i love sharing i love the guests i love the panelists i've loved i've loved interacting with everyone we've met so my pick is the listeners and the sponsors too have you know helped make this show possible as well because you know the shows are hard to do and and for years we've had good sponsors that come from the community so i'm gonna pick the listeners and the sponsors so those are my picks. And then obviously in that goes all the panels on the show right now. Jennifer, Brian, Alyssa, Shy, Joe, who's not here this time either. But um, I pick all you guys. You guys are, uh, I love, I love you. If I didn't know you enough before we started doing this, I know you enough now and, and you guys are fantastic. So thank you. Anyway, so my pick is, is that. That's my pick. Who wants to go next? I'll go next, mostly because I have to say my password is not actually password. But that's one of my picks is uh, one of my favorite shows, Red vs. Blue. It was kind of the first big machinima to really take off, but they've got this great password is, password joke throughout the series. I've been watching it since the latest Tesla was revealed and Puma jokes and all sorts of stuff. And then pick number two is from Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, um, Sumi Nozrats, I can never say her last name properly, her buttermilk marinated roast chicken. That is flawless, y'all. So if you've ever been too scared to roast a chicken by yourself, Try that recipe. It's fantastic. Yes. And the audience is great. And I will be um, following Aaron. This will be my last podcast on Adventures in Angular. All right. Who wants to go next? Uh, I guess I'll go. My pick is Angular Ivy. So I've been playing around with version 9. I think RC3 came out about a week ago. So I've been kind of doing some early testing with it and checking it out. And the template type checking is uh, phenomenal. They've That's really awesome. done a really good job with this release. And I think most of us can say that we're very excited about this release. I think, geez, Ivy is what, a year, year and a half in the making, something like that. Oh, yeah. So it's really cool to see this finally kind of hit production, um, at least for projects, uh, maybe not for libraries yet until, I guess, version 10. But certainly really excited to play with that. And as a follow-on, I didn't realize this. Does anybody know why it's called Ivy? I have no idea why it's called that. I, I, yeah, I had no, yeah, I've always wondered too. I'm like, why Ivy? And so it's the fourth renderer, right? Engine oh. that they've built. So in Ro- Roman why. numerals, it's I V. Oh yeah. So it's like I saw that. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so talk about a cool name. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, those are my picks. 
And certainly been uh, great uh, being on this with you, Frosty. And, and I'm hoping to join you on the new show as well. So Yeah. You know, and I, saying that it's IV, that makes me laugh because I have this idea in my head where someone like Shai Resnick does a skit where all the problems in the world we just run around and fix by putting an IV <laughs> in IV. arms. Yeah. And I, I thought it was IV with a Y at the end, but it, knowing that it's IV with a freak, just IV, like same as intravenous, that yeah. would have been an epic thing. I, I still feel like Shia should do that, 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 that skit. Can you guys imagine like someone's like, they go and we run around and we shout all the things Angular's not doing right. And it's like, don't worry. And you just stick it out. It is fixed. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of been the promise. So that makes me laugh. <laughs> That's cool. I'm glad to know what it came from. So there you go. Yeah. Alyssa? Yeah. So I'm going to miss you all. <laughs> it has been so, so much fun having you on the show. My pick for today is a game that we got and that we're playing with family over the holidays. Um, it's by the Exploding Kittens Company and it's called On a Scale of One to T Rex. So it's for people who are bad at charades, which seems to be my entire family. So. Check cool. that out if you're in need of a fun board game. And uh, is your family? Um, <laughs> do they listen to the podcast? They do occasionally, uh, although they say they don't understand like 98 percent of it. So, so you're immune to that. <laughs> you're immune to what you just said about them. You're okay. No. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right, cool. <laughs> just making sure you're gonna be okay. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna miss you guys though. I'm super sad. <laughs> yeah. We love you. Yeah. <laughs> love you guys. <laughs> All right, Philippe, Philip, what you got to pick for us? So, what am I supposed to pick? Anything in life. Alyssa just Anything. picked a game. Jennifer picked uh, a butter chicken. Yeah, yeah. And like red versus yeah. blue. And then Brian picked something from Angular. So you can pick. It literally, could be anything. It's just like a recommendation that you're like, hey, this is from my life. I'm sharing it with you. With all right. all the picks. I approve of the chicken, by the way, because I'm, I'm also a chef, so uh, I definitely like that chicken. I'm Sounds a man great. of many Oh, cows. we're going to be BFFs like then. <laughs> yeah. All right. I wish I had some time to think about that, but uh, let me just shout out the Belgian Angler Conference again. Because, there you go. Yes, absolutely. It's, if you ever have the chance to attend or speak there, um, you definitely should consider that. It's literally the best conference I've ever been to. Um, I really like going there. Everybody eats together it's a it's a very nice place it's a single track so everybody's following the same things there's a lot of fun there's a lot of uh, community feelings there and you basically leave there totally inspired to to learn more and to to do better in in the angular community so yeah is angular belgian is that what's called yes ngbe yeah ngbe yep all right cool awesome absolutely well cool uh philip thanks for coming on appreciate you for all you do in the community, you're a GDE. I uh, appreciate you taking your time to come and chat with us today. You're very welcome. My pleasure. If you need anything else from me, uh, let me know. If you need any links or references to resources, definitely let me know. Yep. Cool. To the users, I will say it's been fun. I love you. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.